0: And when I ask you to pray for Pastor Keith in just a second, I'm going to ask that you just invoke that, that awesome, loving power of God upon him so that he comes to speak. It's not just a bunch of words set in an order that he's prepared this week, but that it's a, it's a word from the living God from, from the words of the pastor to you. So let's pray for Pastor Keith. Now Lord God, every single day we're in awe of the fact that you, want, you know our names. That you know every hair on our heads or or lack thereof. And you know everything about us inside and out. And we just fall at your feet in our awe. And and Lord, we we know that your love is not just momentary. It's just not an episode in your life. It's something that that, that you carry with with yourself every day. That you love us beyond anything that we could ever love another. And you grant us the power to do your will. And that power is strengthened and, and made more great when it's lived out within the body of the Christ, uh, your church. And so this morning, Lord, as Pastor Keith comes to stand before us, he comes to with awe, love, and power, all those directed at you and receiving every single one of them from you. And so, Lord, we pray that the words he say might be fruitful for the gathering and the building of this body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, Pastor Keith.
1: Thank you, Mike.
0: Good morning. Good to be with you this morning.
1: Uh, We're continuing in our sermon series um, on the church, and not just this church, but what the church as a whole, the church in general, the Christian church in general, and today I'm going to be talking about what keeps the church the church, which is a sermon I've never really preached before other than the earlier two services today, but as I thought about it, as I worked on it, I feel like... It's something that needs to be said as we think about it, because the truth is, just like a lot of places undergo changes, and sometimes those changes enhance the identity and mission of an organization, sometimes changes can completely take away a mission's organization and identity. And I mean, have you ever seen like a restaurant like, or a hotel or something with a sign that says under new management? And it's like the same thing, right? It's like a McDonald's that's under new management. And you wonder, how much different is McDonald's going to be under one manager to the next? Everything's pretty standard, right? But then there are other times where you can see places that undergo radical transformation. You know, you can see, like, you know, maybe there's a restaurant that, like, served Mexican food for 50 years. And then they shut it down, and then it opened up as an Italian place or whatever. You know, I used to love to go to this, this parrot restaurant down the street, the Mexican place down there on 7th Avenue. And then they shut it down. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I was like, oh, I really like that place. It was excellent. Well, now I see there's activity over there. There's a new place started up, new sign, new name. But is it the same thing? You know, we don't know, right? But it's not like, you know, Tony G's Spaghetti House. So it's probably going to be somewhat similar. You know, but have you ever seen a sign like under new management put outside of a church? Think about that for a second. (laughs) Under new management. I've seen that sign before. You know, what does it mean? It's pretty rare But I think oftentimes, it's not so much what happens because of the sign that means things can be under new management, but things within can change. And this this very idea about what keeps the church the church, it insinuates just in the topic and title that something can happen to a church that can make it not be a church anymore. Okay, and I'm not just talking about like selling the building to you know a library or something like that. I'm talking about an organization, institution that claims to be a church that seeks or um, ceases being a church. Can that happen? It's an interesting idea. I want you to think about that for a, for a few moments. And as we dig into some 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 scriptures here in a few moments, I wanna I wanna open your mind to the possibility. That as the church, as members of the church, as Christians, we must be as diligent in our pursuit of remaining the church of Jesus Christ as we were becoming the church of Jesus Christ. So what are the things that keep a church the church? Well, kind of a spoiler alert, they're basically the same things that make a church the church. Right, The same things that make a church a church is what keeps the church the church. But why do we need to preach this sermon in the first place? Because it's so important, according to Jesus, that we remain who God's called us to be. It's not just a one-and-done deal when it comes to who you are. It's something that we must renew and remain in. So I've got four ideas I want to share with you this morning about what keeps the church the church. And the first one is this, that the church must belong to God. And remain in Jesus. Now, when we've talked about verses like in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus makes promises to the church, one of the things that Jesus says, like in Matthew sixteen eighteen, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. The key word being, Jesus says, my church. The church belongs to Jesus. And it must stay that way. We as a church, we work for Jesus, you guys. He doesn't work for us. The church is about Jesus. It's not the other way around. Now, how does this play out? You know, what, what do I mean? I, th- I think it's easy for churches to lose their gospel of Jesus identity because we live in a society and culture where churches are competing against each other oftentimes, right? I mean, there's a church across the street over here. Okay, I was at a church last night, and there was another church right across the street from that one, and everywhere we go, there's multiple churches they're in just one church in the in the Cedar Rapids Marion area, right? There's lots of them, thousands of them. So what makes one church better than another, or what makes one church where I should be versus another? Sadly, oftentimes the reasons why people like decide that one church is better than another have very little to do with Jesus. you know they, they have things. To do with like, well, like, like the music's better over at that church, or the preacher is more entertaining, or they're smarter, or I like the, the people that go to that church are the cool people, and I want to be cool too. Or that church has an amazing thing for my kids, or they have this program, or they do this for me, or they do that for me. One of, one of my buddies was a was a, a pastor at this huge mega church in Chicago, and and he invited me to come and speak to one of the groups there and I went there and he was showing me around He's like, oh, check this out. We were walking down this place and their children's, their children's wing, okay? I Notice I didn't say hallway. Their children's wing had like eight McDonald's Playlands stacked on top of each other, okay? I mean, it was unbelievable. They had a climbing wall, they had all this stuff and their youth center had this like theater and bowling alley and an arcade, all this. And they am thinking, well, who wouldn't want to go to church here, right? This is awesome. what about the little church down the street doesn't have anything like that, right? See, we look at those churches, we go, those are better churches. But rarely do we say what makes one church better than the other is its connection or relation to Jesus. Because we just assume that. But I'm not so sure that we should. Now, I'm not beating up on big, fancy churches, okay? I mean, we're going to build one, right? But we can never substitute, you know, substance... For style. We, we can't do that. We have to have the substance. Otherwise, the style is just, we're just another organization in the world, you see. But it's easy for those things to become the main thing. It's easy for the leadership to be put into a position where it's like all about the leadership. I mean, have you ever seen like a big church billboard? And it's a ginormous picture of the pastor. And maybe his wife. And they're kind of like, come to our church where we're awesome. I mean, doesn't that seem a little weird? You know? But it's not just like, you know, those things that can happen. I mean, I remember a few years ago, a megachurch pastor, one of the guys I looked up to greatly, a megachurch pastor from a church of tens of thousands of people, one of the most influential churches in the world, was overheard in a meeting with his staff talking about the church's branding, right? Their logo, all their stuff had to look cool. And, And he was overheard saying the following. He said, one thing that you all need to recognize... I am the brand of this church. I am the brand. This church will always be about me standing on the stage holding a Bible. You know, that church doesn't exist anymore. And the pastor's not there anymore. He had to, re- he had to resign in kind of disgrace for abusing his authority and the way he was treating some people. Amazing though how easy in our society it can be. So easy to make the church about ourselves or about our leaders. But don't think this is just a danger for you know big mega church rock star pastors or churches with all kinds of amazing facilities. You know most of our mainline denominations are dying a slow and painful death. <clears throat> Because for many of us, the church has been completely taken away from Jesus in favor of social causes or politics or things having to do with with how the church deals with certain issues. Those have become much more central to the church's identity than anything having to do with Jesus. And if Jesus agrees on a certain point, we'll bring him out and we'll say, yep, he agrees with me here. But when he stops agreeing with me, we're going to put him back where he belongs in, in the world of legend and myth and history. And when, when his view supports my view, when, when his view supports my cause, then I'll bring Jesus out and be like, yeah, 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 Jesus. But the minute that he says something that I disagree with or challenges me or doesn't go with what I say, now I'm going to say, well, we can't really trust the words of Jesus. They're antiquated and they come from books that are really unreliable historically a lot of hypocrisy going on in the church. For the church to remain the church, it has to remain in Jesus. It has to belong to Jesus. But it's tough for a church to belong to Jesus, especially in a world where success is often defined by how the world feels about the church and its pastors. You know, we watched the, um, a worldwide Web, webinar on Thursday. Pastor Mike, Vicky, and Simon, and, and other people from our staff were upstairs watching this. And this was broadcast all over the world by the Barna Group, which is a fact-finding church research group in California. And they're the ones that take all the surveys and give you all the statistics and everything. They do on a lot of things. And one of the things they were talking about in this, this webinar was called The State of Pastors. And they were talking about how difficult it is for pastors to live in this world where society thinks less and less of churches and pastors than it ever has it used to be that the pastor was a well respected member of society and whether you went to church or not you you viewed a pastor in a way that was like wow that person has has a you know something good for our community and is a, and is a well respected person and even if i don't attend church i respect church those days are over they're over and and the church and pastors are freaking out right now Because we're seeing our perceived influence dwindling to nothing because society as a whole has pretty much said, you know, what you Christians do over there, just, it's fine, just keep it in there and we don't really care about it. And what you think about things doesn't really mean anything to us out here in the real world where people embrace actual truth and science and things like that and and open-minded. Well, you Christians, you guys are a bunch of closed-minded, you know, people that don't really connect with reality, so we don't really care. Well, churches and pastors are like freaking out about this because they want the world to like them. They, ex- they want people to think they're great, right? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a crisis that's happening all around us, right, so to speak. And as I was listening to that on Thursday, I was thinking about this talk I was going to give today, and I was thinking about the scripture that I wanted to read. And at first I was going to read just a couple of little nuggets from John 15 as, as my text for, for this this. Sermon, but I decided that I would, you know, I'd I'd give up some other illustrations in order to to give you a little bit more of what Jesus' words are for the church and how important it is for the church to remain the church. So I'm going to read a lengthy text here, and I want you to understand first of all who Jesus was speaking to and why, and who he's speaking to. In John 15, are not the unconverted masses out in the in the countryside someplace? This is not an evangelistic text where he's trying to convince people who don't know about God that they should love God. He's talking to his inner circle. He's talking to the apostles. He's talking to the leaders of his church. And here's what he said to him. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what was written about their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. Notice that he says, why? He speaks this way, so that you will not fall away. Now, that presumes, that presumes that it's possible to fall away, and I would advocate that it most certainly is. It's more possible than we'd like to acknowledge. The fact of the matter is this, if we fail to remain in Jesus, the warnings come along with following away. With falling away, they come to us as well. If the church wants to remain the church, it must remain in Jesus. It must always belong to Jesus. We must never let our own preferences or our own identities or our own opinions co-opt the message of the church and the identity of the church. We can never wrestle it away from Jesus. He warns them to remember who they are, and more importantly, to remember whose they are. We must do the same. For a church to be a church, it must belong to Jesus. Now, how do you know if a church belongs to Jesus? Point number two is this. The church must obey Jesus. This was Jesus' criteria. It wasn't, okay, well, you have to play this kind of music, and you have to have this kind of logo, and you have to have this kind of program for people, and you have to do this. No, the criteria for, re- for remaining and belonging to Jesus is this. Do you obey Jesus? That's how we know We see it here in John's Gospel. We also see it in Jesus' Great Commission in Matthew 28, where the apostles were instructed to teach people to obey everything I have commanded you. That's what Jesus said. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and then here's the promise, and I will be with you until the very end of the age. Obedience to Christ is the mark of the church. Now, that does not mean the church is perfect. That does not mean that the church is without sin. That does not mean that the church's leaders are perfect or without sin. On the contrary, all of us are full of sin. The apostles were sinners. Peter was a sinner. None of us can stand before God as a church or as an individual and say, well, I've done it perfectly. I've obeyed you uh, without fail. See, God is merciful. And that's why he commands us, when you fail, to repent. When you are convicted of sin, to turn from it and run to Christ. One of the first commands that Jesus gave to his apostles was the command to forgive sins. We must recognize that our role is to reconcile the world to Christ and reconcile ourselves to Christ. The church is not perfect. Human beings are not perfect. We're human and we sin and we fail. But that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we can throw out the commands of Christ as though they are no more than suggestions. We must obey Christ. We must obey him. Number three, for the church to remain the church, the church must remain connected to the authority of the apostles. Now, Pastor Mike talked about authority last week, the authority of the church. I wait, do you even think in those terms? It's weird for us as Protestant Christians to think about the authority of the church. Because we don't talk about that the same way that our Catholic brothers and sisters or our Orthodox brothers and sisters do, right? We seem different in that. We have to ask ourselves, what authority does the church have in our lives? Not the pastor, right? I don't have authority over any of your lives, right? You don't have to listen to me just because I'm a pastor, right? But the teaching of the church should have authority in the lives of the church. If I were to ask you, as a Christian, what would you consider to be the pillar and foundation of truth as a Christian? What, what would you say? If I said, what's the pillar and foundation of the truth as you know it as a Christian, what would you say? I bet 95% of you would say this, right? You're like, the Bible. The Bible is the pillar and foundation of Of the truth. But do you want to know that the Bible doesn't say that? Do you want to know what the Bible says? The pillar and foundation of truth is? Let's look. 1 Timothy 3.15. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. He says, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now you may say, I don't understand what that means, right? I don't get that. It's a little bit tougher for us to understand. Because we don't trace our history as Methodists so much back to the apostles. We trace it to John Wesley, right? In the 18th century. But John Wesley in the 18th century didn't just show up randomly out of nowhere and go, hey, guess what? What? I'm starting this new thing called Methodism. Forget everything you've ever heard about Christianity. Forget everything you've heard about Jesus. Come follow me. I found this book out in the woods, and we're going to go study it, and I'm going to teach you everything that you need to know about God because everybody before me was wrong, and now I know the truth, and I'm going to teach you, right? That's not what we believe. We don't trace our history back to the beginning of John West. We trace it back to the apostles, their legacy has become our legacy. Let me, let me show you exactly how that works. A couple examples. We talked about the Bible for a second. Okay? For, for those Christians out there that want to say, you know what? I disagree with you, Pastor. I don't need the church. I just need this holy book, and that's it. I just need me and Jesus. Jesus. I just need the Bible. I don't need some church telling me what to do. I don't need some pastor over me. I don't need some group of people making up theology and doctrines of men. I just need this book and Jesus, right? There are people out there that believe like that. Well, think about this. Every time you pick up this book, right? Every time you pick this book up and that you call it the Word of God, you call it the authority in your life, you are acknowledging the authority of the church. Because where do you think it came from? Think it just fell out of the sky one day? Not at all. There were lots of writings about Jesus and Christianity floating around for, for many, many years as the church began. But it wasn't until the church gathered together under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit and declared authoritatively with the authority that Jesus had given to them This is our canon of Scripture, that the Bible even came into existence in the way that you and I have it, right? So the fact that if you even believe in the Bible, you believe in the authority of the church, because that's where the Bible came from. The Word of God passed down. Let me me give you an example of this. 2 Thessalonians, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, Paul writes these these words. He says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you, we meaning the apostles, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So there were two forms of communication going on. There were written forms and there were oral forms. Most people couldn't read and write. So passing out Bibles wouldn't have gotten anywhere. There was no printing press. There weren't Bibles everywhere like there are here today. So how did people learn anything about Jesus? How did they know what they were supposed to do as a Christian? They were taught by the apostles, just like Jesus taught them, who, by the way, Jesus never wrote anything down either. But the Gospel of John tells us that if everything Jesus said and did were written down, the world could not contain all the books that would have to be written. See this deposit of faith, this teaching, the gospel was passed down by Jesus to these apostles who wrote about it and talked about it. And that became this, Right? But it's also more than this, you see. What do you mean? There's more than just the Bible? Well, kind of. Right? Now just hang with me here before you think I'm some kind of freak. Okay? Let's talk about your theology for a minute. How does your theology acknowledge the authority of the apostles? Well, do you believe in the Trinity? Right? You believe in the Holy Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Find that in the Bible. Find me one verse in the Bible where it says God is a Trinity. doesn't exist. Now, the idea is there. The the teaching is there, but it wasn't written that way. That was something that developed as the church fathers wrestled with this understanding of who God is and how God has come to us, and they codified that. How about what you believe about Jesus Christ? You know that there was a lot of controversy about the nature of Christ floating around in the first centuries of, of Christianity. Some thought that Jesus Christ was simply a creature created by God but not eternal God himself, fully divine. And yet there were others that believed wholeheartedly that he was fully divine, the second member of the Holy Trinity. So why do you believe that? You believe that because of the authority of the apostles and because of the authority of their teachers. Now, can anyone just get up and declare some new doctrine or teaching? Right? Can I do that? Can I just stand up today and say, you know what, I've decided... That in Christianity, people who are taller than five foot seven, you know, have to pay twice as many tithes and offerings as people who are shorter, right? I just made it. Can I just get up and say whatever I want? Can some pastor, preacher, teacher just stand up and start spouting off some kind of teaching about who God is or what God is? You know what? The truth is, they do it all the time, don't they? You ever watch the TV preachers? I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff talked about on there, right? Right? People get up and just, oh, well, God spoke to me in a vision. And in Zechariah 2.9, it says God's like a flower, so I'm going to sell you a flower for $59.95. You know, and if you send me money, I'll send you this Holy Spirit flower, and God will bless you. You know, all of these new doctrines and teachings. But guess what? This isn't something that just started happening in the 20th century. This was happening all over the place. People were sprouting up. And coming up with these new ideas and these new teachings. So how do we wind up with what we have? Well, at some point in time, the authority of the apostles stepped in and said, this, not that, right? This teaching lines up with what we've learned from Jesus. That doesn't. And the teaching that doesn't line up with what we've learned from Jesus is called heresy, right? So the idea of heresy is a teaching that doesn't line up with the apostles and fit under their authority. Now, we see this happening throughout history. And I just wanted to share with you a couple, a couple of uh, instances from, from, you know, hundreds of years ago. Writing in the, in the fourth century, there was a bishop of, of, of a place called Alexandria, a man named Athanasius. And Athanasius was a bishop of Alexandria, and he was a staunch defender of Orthodox Christianity. And one of the things he was defending against was this idea that Jesus Christ was a creature and not eternal God. And, and here's what he wrote. (coughs) about people who were teaching these false ideas, even though they had Scripture. He said this, But after him, and with him, talking about this heretic, are all inventors of unlawful heresies, who indeed refer to the Scriptures, but do not hold such opinions as the saints have handed down, and receiving them as traditions of men. They err because they do not rightly know them, nor their power." Then a little bit later, Augustine wrote these words in the 4th century or 5th century. He says, If you acknowledge the supreme authority of Scripture, you should recognize that authority, which from the time of Christ himself, through the ministry of his apostles, and through a regular succession of bishops in the seats of the apostles, has been preserved to our own day throughout the world with a reputation known to all. You see, people were jumping in there and trying to say, Oh, well, I have this new idea, and I have that new idea. These doctrines were examined in the light of not only the Scripture, but also in their adherence to the tradition of the apostles. The Scripture itself wasn't enough, because oftentimes the heretics would use Scripture and twist it around in their own interpretation. Again, that's why you and I believe in the Trinity and the eternal nature of Christ. These ideas are taught in Scripture, but they're developed and confirmed by the apostles and their successors. It's not enough just for someone to stand up with the Bible and tell you, well, this is what it says. You've got to ask yourself, does it line up with what the church teaches? I mean, think about that. You've seen that. You guys remember uh, David Koresh, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas? You know, David Koresh could could run circles around me and Pastor Mike with, with the Bible study. I mean, that guy knew his Bible backwards and forwards. His followers in that compound would often sit through 12-hour-plus Bible studies in which he would take the Scriptures and point to things in Revelation and point to things in Ezekiel and point to things in Daniel and somehow, because he had a Bible and sounded like he knew what he was talking about, convinced everyone in there that he was the Messiah and that all of the wives of the compound now belong to him. Now, you want to tell me how you get that from this? But yet they believed him, didn't they? Now, if they simply would have had a respect for the authority of the teachings of the apostles, that never would have happened. Make no mistake, this book contains the word of God. It is the word of God. But you can take it and make it mean just about whatever you want to make it mean, can't you? Next time the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons show up at your front doorstep... Guess what? They'll have a Bible with them. And they know the verses to go to. And they'll open things up. And they'll put you on the spot. And they'll say, oh yeah, you believe in the Trinity? Well, what about this? Where Jesus says the Father is greater than I. Oh yeah, you believe in this? Well, what about this verse? What about that verse? And if you don't understand the authority of the, of the, the apostles in their teaching, you can easily be pulled astray. So whoever stands up before you, understand this. For a church to remain a church, the connection to historical, orthodox, apostolic authority must remain. Now, lastly, one more thing here. You know, this has been kind of a sterile talk. All this theology, all this kind of, you know, brain stuff, right? Is that what church is all about? Right? Is church just about knowing stuff and believing stuff? Well, not really. That's a part of it. But all of that has to lead to this. The church must remain the body of Christ. The church must remain the body of Christ. Jesus said this, look, everything I've taught you, it boils down to this, love. Love each other, right? That's the command that he gives to us. But we can make it so complicated, can't we at times? But at the end of it, we all have to come down to this idea of the love of God. And extending that love to each other. And extending that love to the world. Because no matter how cool our building is, or how cool our branding is, or how cool our programs are, all of that stuff that, that, that we as the church sometimes think is what's going to make everybody want to flock to us, you know what? It doesn't hold any water ultimately. But what does hold water ultimately is love. Can you love somebody with the love of Christ that hates you? Can you love somebody? Can I love somebody? Can we love somebody in the world that thinks the church is ridiculous? Do we extend love to those who are our enemies, so to speak? Do we respond with grace when people attack us? Do we respond with the love of Christ when everything in our flesh wants to lash out against them? See, for the church to remain the church, we must remain a body. And how we treat each other And how we treat the world matters to Jesus. It's one of the markers of the church. This idea that we are a body, that we're not interdependent or independent of one another, but that rather we are interdependent, that we exist to be in relationship with each other, that we exist for a mission that's going to take every single one of us doing our job. The Apostle Paul loves this analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. He goes through it. He talks about it. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And I'm not going to read this entire text to you right now, but you can can see that it's there and look at it. His point was this, that we need each other. The eye is no more important than the hand, and the foot cannot exist without the leg. And all of us work together. And though, like our human bodies, we think we have some parts that are more important than others, right? Right? Some parts we want people to be not seeing, others that that we're proud of. Jesus in, in, in God says that, you know, everyone is exalted together. When one part is honored, all parts are honored. When one suffers, all suffer. Basically, the idea is this. We need each other as a living body. But sadly, oftentimes, we believe the lie that we don't. You know, one of the other things that we learned about in this state of pastors thing that I was talking about earlier was how the Christian church today and how people who are believing themselves to be full-on, dedicated members just attend less and less and less per month. It's just not as important as it used to be. And the idea is so popular these days that, well, I can be a Christian. I can have a good relationship with God without the church. You know, the Scripture reminds us That's the same thing as saying, you know, I can have an awesome foot over there without being connected to my my body. It doesn't work that way. We're to be one. We're to be together. We're to be united. Even if we disagree. Even if we have problems. Even if personally we don't like each other. None of that stuff takes any precedence over our our unity in Christ. And we must never forget that. The head of the church is Christ, but we also need the neck and the heart. So as we strive to be who God has called us to be, we must understand what it means to be part of this thing called church. We must understand what the church is, how it works, and what it means to remain a part of it. We must hear both Jesus' promises to the church and the warning to the church against falling away. And we must remember fundamentally The church is not about us, while at the same time recognizing our pivotal role in its mission. But what about you? You know, everything that we talked about this morning, about the church, can be applied to each one of us personally. Each one of us. Do you belong to Jesus? Or do you think he belongs to you? Are you his, or is he yours? Do you exist for his glory or does he exist for your glory? Do, do you believe in the authority of the church? Do you come under that authority or do your opinions and preferences trump the authority of God's apostles? Think about that. Are you willing to come under the authority? That doesn't mean you come under my authority, right? I am not the church. But the teaching of the church is my point. Are are you obedient to God? Do you follow the commands of Jesus? Do you remain connected to him through through obedience and love? Do you love each other the way that God has loved you? And Are you part of the body? Have you allowed yourself to remain connected? Even though it might not always be easy. Even though it might not always feel good. If you do so, Jesus has great promises for you. But make no mistake, if you don't, he also has a great warning for you as well. So As we step into to our future as a church, we must never let what we're doing with our campaign or with our programs ever take our identity away from belonging to Jesus. We belong to him. And we all belong to each other. Let's stay the church. Let's not ever come under new management, okay? That doesn't mean Pastor Mike and Keith are always going to be here. But it does mean that the head of our church is Christ, no matter what. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this thing that you've created called the church. And Lord, as crazy as it can be sometimes, we know that you've promised that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So move within our hearts. Allow us to become more submissive to your authority, more connected to each other, to love with a greater capacity than we've ever imagined, Lord, even those who hate us in this world. God, allow our hearts to so mirror the heart of Christ that whether we have the most amazing worldly things or not, the world would be drawn to you by what they see in us and that you would get the glory for that. Help each of us, Lord, to understand the important role that we play in your church. The pivotal role, the the necessity that we are here engaged fully in the life and ministry of this church is we are a body and you are our head, Lord. May we follow you always. In Jesus' name, amen.